Hello, everybody, and welcome to the 399th episode of MTG Fast Finance, the podcast that's simply marvelous any which way you play it. MTG Fast Finance is your weekly podcast covering the world of Magic the Gathering finance, collection management, and speculation. I am your host, James Chilcott, a.k.a. at MTG Critic on Twitter. My co-host this week is Cliff Daigle, a.k.a. at Word of Commander on Twitter. And we're here to help you folks make and save money playing our favorite game, Marvel the Gathering. <laughs> You're going to mess me up. You do that too much, man. Uh, hi, everybody. I'm looking forward to sharing all the developments of the week. There's some crazy stuff going on. But before we do, I want to remind our listeners that this show is produced by mtgprice.com, the leading MTG finance community. Please sign up today at mtgprice.com to plan your specs, chat on a great Discord, and read articles by some of the best financial minds in the hobby. MTG Fast Finance is proudly sponsored by Cool Stuff Inc., where you can find all sorts of cool, nerdy stuff in stock, including all the best in Magic the Gathering singles, sealed product, and a plethora of other collectibles. Use the promo code FINANCE5 during checkout at CoolStuffInc.com to save 5% off your order and support this podcast. Cliff, what is on our marvelous agenda this week? Uh, The count is now two, and we will keep count. Uh, We're going to lead off with the Metagame Week in Review. We're going to talk a modern challenge and a legacy showcase challenge. Then we're going to talk about the top movers in paper. Segment three is top movers online. Segment four has our cards to watch. You and I have some picks of the week. And finally, we've got a listener who sent us their collection, and we're going to talk about what they've got, what they're planning, and what they want to do with it. Sounds good to me. Kick things off with Metagame Week in Review. Let's take a look at this fairly interesting-looking modern challenge from this Sunday, October 22nd. It was taken down by Five Color Beanstalk. This thing has two murderous cut. It's got two commandeer, two bring to light, and four of the beanstalk of the moment. I'm not particularly surprised to see Bean doing this well, uh, given all of the action and hype that have been surrounding it just lately. I am definitely amused by how wild the variants of this deck have become and the spread of the Beanstalk decks from Modern on into Legacy. Well, the best thing about the list that won, did it jump out at you? It's 70 cards. It's not like 80 cards for a, for a Yorion deck. It's not like any kind of weird thing. They're just like, you know what? 60 is an arbitrary thing, and if I'm playing enough ways to cascade into up the Beanstalk which is what this deck is about with the four Shardless Agent, four Ardent Plea, plus you've got Bring to Light ready to party as well. Uh, you're going to get your beans in play, and you're going to be drawing like crazy. And you're like, why should I stop at 60? They just added an extra 10 cards off of 25 land. I mean, I've I've played, you know, a 41, a 42 card deck in Limited, but I've never looked at a standard tournament, and you go, you know what I need? 85 cards. That's what I need to be playing right now. And the funny thing is both of the Beanstalk lists in first and fifth were in that position, and the one that finished in eighth had 74 cards. So (laughs) both the four and five color variants have figured out that in the mirror, sometimes you're just grinding each other so hard that it really just comes down to who has more cards left in their deck. That's amazing. I can see deck uh, times where you're going to deck yourself and you're just like oh god what am i going to do about this the answer is clearly add more cards just put more cards in there 
it's yeah. just hilarious to me that for 25 years magic players were so so certain that 60 would always be the exact correct number for every constructed deck and then from Yorion and beyond they've now found found multiple reasons to go over 60 <laughs> it's just wild man like looking at this deck uh you've got the singleton eagles of the north to go get some plane cycling on or be a six drop that draws you some cards I, I I was I was wondering when we were gonna see the eagle come into the chat because when we first when we first got Lorian revealed then the discussion was troll and then it was you know which of the and I guess we had the green one in living end and then it was how long will it be until the red one and the white one show up yeah then and the answer is not very long. We've also got uh, two bring to light here, which is good for just about everything you might want. I don't, I'm not up to date on the cascading rules. Fire ice is not something they can cascade into, right? Yeah, that's the whole point. It, ca- it counts as four these days. Okay, so that's how that works. So yeah, all of your shardless agents and your ardent pleas are going to hit your beans, and you can bring to light for a time warp. Uh, you know, you're going to hit a bean. Yeah, you're going to hit a beans. That's it. And you've got Teferi, you can bounce your creature and start all over again. Your Omnath, uh, Commandeer, which we're going to talk about in a minute. Uh, just, I've got all these extra cards in hand. You know what I want to do? Steal your stuff. Yeah. Love it. Love everything about this. Second place list was a bit of a rogue, I would imagine, in this top eight, since we haven't seen much of this one lately. Combo has been largely out of the uh, conversation for the most part, outside of the creature combo builds. But here we have Ad Nauseam finishing in second with one copy of the One Ring and four Thassa's Oracle and all the relevant associated cards, Spoils of the Vault, Angel's Grace, Intervention Pack, Pact of Negation, Offer You Can't Refuse, Preordain, Profane Tutor, and Sleight of Hand. The usual nonsense. Third place was a burn list, black, red, scam, and fourth, another five-color beanstalk, as we said earlier, in fifth, and a four-color version that was heavier on the white cards, including Elish Norn in eighth, and then Amulet Titan with four green suns twilight was in sixth, and Shardless Rhinos in seventh. On over in Legacy, Beanstalk took down that tournament as well, and this one wasn't a regular challenge, it was the Legacy Showcase Challenge, and this was a... Bant Beanstalk list, close as I can... I guess they have... It's technically four color because they have fourth Aerolingus and a red elemental blast in the sideboard. And they've got three Lorien revealed as well. uh, Four Beanstalk, four Leyline Binding, three the One Ring. And of course, amazing to have access to Force of Will in in your Bean list. Oh, Exactly where you want to be with that. Say those words again. They've also got Terminus, right? So you get to Miracle Terminus off the top for one and draw a card. Sounds real good. Uh, just Lorien Revealed with actual dual lands, that's pretty damn busted, as well as uh, Lorien Revealed with Mystic Sanctuary. Like These are the things that modern players just drool to do that they're not allowed to do. <laughs> yeah, a lot of the stuff in here was used to be in modern. This is an 80-card legacy list, by the way, you know, playing Yorion and don't care about 60 cards when you can have Yorion access and you're just beans all over the place. Is Beanstalk on cast or come into play? You get come into play for the first card you draw, and then it's whenever you cast a spell. Right, right. So Yorion's going to give you one card off each Beanstalk. And also let you potentially reset Leyline Bindings, get Uro Triggers, reset Teferi if you need to. Well, you have to cast. You have to cast the spell. So Yorion flickers don't do it. 
No, 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 I know. But the what I'm saying is you're also going to get to do all that other value chain stuff. Like, oh, right. Re- yeah. Reset the one ring. No, the one ring's on cast, too. So reset your Uro, reset Leyline Binding, get a card off the Beanstalks, reset Teferi if you've already used it to bounce something. Yeah, the usual nonsense. The usual nonsense is a great way to say that. We had spotted a blue-black mid-range control list in Legacy not long ago, and the the evolution of that list continues to put up solid results. It finished second and fourth here. This is running four Grief, four Bowmasters, four Troll, three Merktide, four Reanimate. Dazes, Force of Wills, Brainstorms, Fatal Pushes, Shieldritz, Edict, Soren's Ransom out of the Lord of the Rings set as a better fact or fiction. Ponders and a mystic sanctuary to bring some of your key spells back i love the idea of turn zero well turn one pitch for grief okay reveal their stuff all right now i'm going to reanimate it and do it again yeah baby yeah i love everything about that we've also got the latest version of the red white mid-range builds that rely heavily on the lands that can tap for two mana city of traders ancient tomb they have chrome boxes, lotus petals, and chalice to shut things down early as necessary. And then they're running Simeon Spirit Guides, Archon of Emeria, four copies. Four copies of Solitude, four copies of Caves of Chaos Adventurer, and four Seasoned Dungeoneer to get their initiative rolling. Two Touch the Spirit Realm, and four Fable of the Mirror Breaker, as well as four Fourth Aerolingus. This is funny because normally you see the lotus petals, the chrome moxes, all that, and you're like, okay, we're, we're doing blood moon things, and there, there's two magus of the moon in the sideboard, and that's it. This is all about just uh, hitting out your archon really early or getting some other shenanigans online because you really want to get your initiative going. It's just so powerful an advantage because there's so little actual attacking that they're going to do past you. They also tend to burn out their hand really fast, so getting the Archon on the table and then slowing a hand down that hasn't had a chance to go crazy yet, you can understand the advantage that would convey. Yeah. So blue-black was again in fourth, mono-white D&T was in fifth, a four-color mid-range brew was in sixth. This one was a little bit of everything. Two Brazen Borrower, three Merktide Regent, four Dragon's Raid Channeler, four Orcish Bowmasters, four Questing Druid continuing its foray into pretty much all constructed formats. I'm not not sure if I've seen it in Vintage yet. I'd have to check. But it's (laughs) certainly everywhere else. Standard, Pioneer, Modern, Legacy. And yeah, four Ponder, two Lorien Revealed, four Days, Lightning Bolt, Brainstorm, Force of Will. Pretty uh, classic Teamer-style list, just with a few different creatures in the creature slot as that power creep has continued to push into the format. Four Color Control in 7th place. This one was a little different. It was 3 the One Ring, 3 Uro Titan of Nature's Wrath, 2 Dress Down, 4 Leyline Binding, 2 Teferi Time Raveler, Ponders, Terminus's Life in the Loam, but no Beanstalk. No Beanstalk. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe they couldn't find any in time. <laughs> yeah. They were too expensive on Magic Online. And then yeah. Teamer Midrange was the final list. And this is... Very standard rug action, Merktide Regents, Dragon Rage Channeler, and now the Questing Druid, Brainstorms, Lightning Bolts, Force of Will, Days, Unholy Heat, Preordine, Ponder, and Mishra's Bauble, the Uge. A lot of Carpet of Flowers around, too, and that's a card, if you haven't resolved it lately, that one's super duper fun in a format full of islands. And there's a bunch of really nice Surge Foils for cheap in the Doctor Who CBs, so people that are looking for a nice Carpet of Flowers, 
They are sitting around waiting for your grubby little hands. <laughs> Moving on over to the top paper movers of the week. All sorts of action. Uh, a lot of interesting things going on here. Up the Beanstalk. Just regular copies. Up to 475 from 325 That's 46% gains. Powerhouse constructed staple. Again, pretty solid chance this card gets banned at some point in my estimation. It just seems way too dominant. And it's, it's, it's really good, yeah. It really does feel like Modern and Legacy are bending around the card, and I don't know how long that can go on. Now, that said, that's also true of the Elementals from MH2, so maybe Wizards is just going to tough it out until MH3 lands and drops a whole heap of fresh meteors on everybody's playlist. Well, they can ban Beanstalk without, you know, torpedoing their entire Modern Horizons 3 plan, so yep. that would be the, the more likely outcome. It may also be possible that they put a bunch of things in MH3 that play way too nicely with Beanstalk. I mean, they need if Modern Horizons 3 is going to have stuff that shakes up the format, so it's either under-costed things or things, ways to reduce the cost. And if it's more cost reducers, well, we see what that does to a format when you give us up the Beanstalk. Yeah, and, and the free elementals, etc. Keeper of Secrets from 40k going 10 to 15. That's the Doctor Who suspend themes. It was up 5 to 10, I think, last week. Wheel of Fate from Time Spiral Remastered, 350 to 525. 50% gains there as well. Flesh Duplicate Extended Art on early speculation action, I think. 550 to 850 as a strong EDH card that is good in pretty much any blue deck, really. Uh, Sonic Screwdriver Surge Foils also at a Doctor Who Collector Boosters going 650 to 1050. I think also because people are realizing that is a broadly applicable EDH card. I certainly put it into my updated Braille list this past weekend. We've got Sylvan Scrying Old Borders from Time Spiral Remastered. We're not talking about the foils, just the regulars, going $4.25 to $7. There are very few of these left on TCG Player. And I would imagine that's a combined bleed out from EDH players that don't foil their decks, as well as Tron players and Modern that might prefer to not foil. Interesting to me that this particular card has drained out in this particular treatment, but people need to remember that all of the old border retro frames were equally as rare in those packs, and that set was underprinted to some degree. However, there was only one foil every 27 packs, but there was one retro every pack, and how many of these was there? Uh, there was 32 packs in a box? No, 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 no. How many total in the retro sheet oh there was a whole sheet 121 right so you basically needed 121 packs to find one of these sylvan scryings which is significantly lower drop rate than it would normally appear in any other set yeah they did they've done a few versions of the card but this is the only retro one and so it is by far the most expensive i also see court of garenbrig under pressure definitely I, i think from a combination of player demand and speculation foils from of this card going 9 to 18, 100% gains very early on. This was picked episode 397. Two weeks ago. Yeah. And already looking pretty good. Rousing Refrain Extended Art, which is technically a C21 card, but was actually an extended art form found in the Strixhaven Collector Booster boxes, going 8 to 18 on the back of the Doctor Who Suspend themes. Because the Doctor Who... Uh, commanders have not broken through on EDH rec at all as of yet, and it's possible there is a data collection issue there, but as far as we know, they are not getting built to the degree they probably deserve since there are just a ton of interesting commanders to build out of that set. 
And right. as a result, if you can get, you know, a spare $15 out of your old Strixhaven CB pile, yeah, you're going to want to go ahead and sell those rousing refrains while you can. That's uh, quite the reasonable thing to do because it's, I, we'll we'll talk EDH rec later, but the, the core of it is that things are spiking right now into some suspend hype and you want to cash in on that hype because it won't last forever. Bloodbraid Elf Borderless from the 30th uh, Secret Layer just about a year ago. It's about 11 months ago now. Going $1.50 to $3.50. That's the Beanstalk decks in Modern that are running the Bloodbraid as a way to get to their beans. The Flux Surge Foils from Doctor Who are also under pressure. This is uh, a saga that... What's the first mode on it? So two red red, it deals four damage to target creature and opponent controls. And then for four turns, you get a you get a bonus card that you can potentially cast. And then on the sixth turn, you get six red mana. I don't think people yep. have quite wrapped their head around how good sagas are that stick around that long and do stuff all the time. If you can find a way to keep removing a counter, it's just basically, you know, exile the top card every turn. So if you got your um whatever the artifact the power conduit to remove a counter and then add a plus one or a charge counter someplace and just keep it going so that every turn you can keep doing this tom the bomb likes this too so there's there's a number of ways to use this and it's not like surge foils are super duper common especially if the set wasn't planned to be too huge chronomantic escape future site going a dollar to 450 on the doctor who suspend themes We've got Com- Commandeer Foil Etched out of Commander Masters going 15 to, in theory, 50, but I don't think any have sold at that price yet. This is the Beanstalk decks, as we just talked about. The regular versions went 7 to 40, and again, you, if you bought Commander Masters and you were disappointed with your opens, part of that disappointment may have been con- Commandeers, so you're going to want to dig those out and get them sold so that you can catch up <laughs> a little yeah. on, your, on, your, on your spend for sure while they're getting as good. And honestly, if you can take get 20, 20 or 30 in the next couple days, you're going to want to do that because there's, there's no way it's going to hold like this. It's not that there, rare of a card. Yeah, there's a lot of Commander Masters opened, and this is going to be a card that's hot, and you always want to sell the hot card. Don't don't hold on too long it'll burn you one of the other cards people were fooling around with in beanstalk decks i saw aspiring spike playing around with this is they cast a solitude with evoke with the trigger on the stack that would send it away they then elder deep fiend which happens at flash speed and the emerge mechanic allows you to pay five less for the emerge so for two mana you get the elder deep fiend in play which is i believe a five six off the top of my head and it taps four of your opponent's things and you got the solitude trigger and you got the bean trigger twice i was gonna say it pays for itself on the bean triggers yes gross it's pretty gross so uh you probably have some of those sitting around if you were buying boxes during the uh, Eldritch Moon phase, and that doesn't have any fancy versions beyond foil because that was previous to the Collector Booster era, and it's never long been long ago and far away, and never been reprinted. Yep. Biggest uh, hype spike of the week was Etherworks Marvel at a Kaladesh. This thing is one of those classic spec roller coasters that has been up and down and up and down on news a whole bunch of times. And the latest news is that they've revealed details of the Fallout. Uh, universes beyond collector decks follow being the the uh, beloved video game series and it was supposed to release in i think march of 2024 but they gave a, a couple of 
quick previews that we'll go over later in the cast. And one of them was that there is a at least a commander that focuses on energy themes, which we haven't seen since the Kaladesh block. And Etherworks Marvel is going to slot right in there. Now, there's very good chance they just print that in that deck. But maybe not. And if not, or given that you've got six weeks till you, six, or six months till you find out for sure, you may well be able to pick up those marvels at a dollar and flip out of them at three, four, or five. That seems like the most likely outcome here. Uh, we'll we'll see about the the composition of everything. Uh, we're getting energy in at least uh, blue, white, red combination. So we'll see what actually comes to. There's a lot of proliferate theme going on. But you're right, if you can get uh, Etherworks Marvel going, we do love to spend the top of the deck. People need to keep in mind that the Commander decks are now a greater threat than they used to be, at least the universes beyond ones, because of the reprints that they seem very pleased to throw in there. They want to make these decks juiced so they can charge you more for them, so they can ensure that you buy them. And the Doctor Who collector boosters are surprisingly good up until about the second box i don't think you want to open a full case because you're going to end up with a whole bunch of waterlogged groves you don't need and whatever and right. and that a search for a waterlogged grove would have been pretty exciting in the summer of 2019 but wedding ring <laughs> extended art from crimson vow cbs were about 16 heading into the doctor who release and now you can get the wedding ring extended art surge foils for four dollars so it's a pretty hard fall, yeah. So, well, at least a huge gap between how the market evaluates the relative rarity of the two versions, and so you're not going to be want to want want to be caught holding Etherworks Marvel if it gets announced as being part of the deck. That's for sure. Like you said, we've got a long time before we know the exact contents of the decks. So, yeah, between the, it's probably not going to be in the collector. Well, it might be in the collector boosters, I suppose. We'll uh, we'll have to see. Yeah, they, because it's just going to be everything that was in the decks. And this is one of the best energy cards you could possibly hope for. So, And and it's one that isn't so far off in naming that it can't be subtitled. You know, they, that they could put Etherworks Marvel in the subtitle and show the main. Yeah, there could be some reskinning going on. We could have uh, all sorts of things happen in the Discord. We were talking about uh, Gonti's Ether Heart. Like, no, that's too much of a... A close call on the name like you can't put that name into a fallout set but i don't you know i don't think that's going to hold them back if they really wanted to reprint it Alrighty, moving on over to top magic online movers of the week shardless agent borderless promos 3.52 ticks to 6.16 75% gains on the back of renewed modern play with beanstalk and also rhinos list blood braid elf Promos, Borderless, 1.88 ticks to 4.04. That's also about Beanstalk, 114% gains there. And then Questing Druid was the big winner this week, doing so well in Legacy and Modern it and Standard and Pioneer. It went from one ticket to 11.97, 1,000% gains. So if you picked up 100 Questing Druids in the opening weeks, you can now cash out at 1000 bucks, which is pretty sweet. That's uh, you, you. You should give serious thought to retiring after a, a hit like that. Now, speaking of questing druid, it's under a lot of pressure. Foil showcases are drying up around six or seven bucks, so I'm going to go ahead and call that for a zero to six month quick quick turnaround. Uh, fairly rare for me. 
7 to 15 seems very plausible here, given the the fact that it's seeing play all the way back to Legacy. I mean, we're we're seeing what it does. This is completely reasonable, and if it it's two really great things in one. It's a peanut butter and jelly, right? You get the two cards uh, that you can have until your next end of your next turn to play, which is always handy, especially on an instant. So you can cast it on your end step. You cast it on on your turn, right? It says until yeah, in, until your next end step. So if you cast it on their turn, you've got their turn and yours to figure it out. Yeah. So you want to cast it on your on their turn, so you have two turns to you draw and have your whole turn available but even so it's just two mana to get two cards and you can play those cards so get your lands and then it's just a creature that grows with all the stuff you play and it's just bonus and if there's one thing we've seen in magic players with the land cycling cards with uh things like the virtue that's a kill spell and then for seven mana it'll bring stuff back um there's all of these things where You've got one mode that you would use and then one that's just a, a bonus extra. We we love that. We really do. We're down to 20 listings for Near Mint Foils. Nobody has particularly deep inventory. And though this set is, in theory, in print, the, the way that the hype cycle is is structured these days, players have already moved on. You know what I'm saying? Right. Like pl- players are not going out of their way to go back and buy Wilds of Eldraine packs at this point. To any, like probably 95% of all the Wilds of Eldraine that's going to get opened has already been opened. So we're, well, was, we're already on to Doctor Who. Then we're going to Ixalan. There was, there's the Marvel news today. There's going to be other stuff coming up towards Christmas with the Lord of the Rings holiday release. So, you know, a, a foil showcase rare, despite not being a mythic, given the amount of play it's seeing, has a pretty solid shot here. So how concerned are you about a wall showing up later on? You know, the gaming company gets their hands on like 50 or 75 copies and lists it sometime. Always a a potential problem. Could happen. Okay. But the market is, is hollowing out and people don't have to be... When there's something like this, it's really good and standard and maybe Pioneer, but it hasn't broken into Modern or Legacy, you don't really want to go into foils because you might not be able to play them once that fades out of the meta. But when it, when you know that the card is good all the way back to Legacy, and in fact can be played in your EDH deck totally reasonably, there, there, you know, there's no reason to be fearful. And this doesn't seem like the kind of card that's going to get any reprint outside of its current circumstances anytime soon. Like There's no way this is any of the secret layers in the next year. Very unlikely to show up anywhere. It is pretty unlikely. The only one with an adventure that's gotten a lot of extra juice has been Brazen Borrower over the years. Yeah, but they took it took some time before they came back around on that one. That's true. All right, I'm with you on this. This is totally uh, totally valid. I'm also always down for you know it's hot right now, but the other version is selling is at a reasonable price point, and you should be able to get out at a lovely double up. I think you can look at regular copies too. It's just going to be harder because there's way more of that inventory way more inventory i'd be i'd, I'd want to see a lot more of that move before I, I did anything like that all right what are we talking about for your first selection here uh my first pick this week is court of cunning uh i've been thinking a lot about the fallout cards that have uh got previewed for us and one of the things that is a theme and we're going to talk about this is uh rad counters and milling and if milling is a thing that's going to be happening uh, Court of Cunning is one of the first cards I want in my deck. So it's one blue-blue for the enchantment. When it comes into play, you become the monarch. And at the beginning of your upkeep, any number of target players each mill two. 
If you're the monarch, each of those players mills 10 instead. Number one, every there's a huge chunk of people who love milling. Let's not skip that at all. Two, in addition to being good with uh, rads and counters and whatnot, there are currently 31 vendors for all conditions of this card in foil extended art. I am picking it to go from about $750 to $20. Uh, I don't see anybody who's got any huge walls. There's a lot of onesie twosie. There's one person with eight copies. And if this is if that person still has those uh, within 48 hours of this cast coming out, I'll probably buy those. The velocity is there. It's a three-drop monarch card, and monarchy is so good. And Commander you just Legends get all the is what, three years old? Uh, yes, it is that old. It is from 2020. Yeah, it was November 20th, 2020. So these are three years old. They haven't shown any interest in reprinting this in any kind of fancy form. Everything is on the table to show up in Commander decks and what have you these days, secret layers, etc. But at present, this is down at 20 listings, tough to, to replenish. There are already a bunch of other mill-related commanders that care about this anyway. Blue-black reanimator strategies can use this to get cards into the yard. And because you get to choose... It's not, it doesn't mention opponents here. You get to choose. Yeah, you could even mill yourself if you want to. Yeah, you can mill yourself if you want to set up some reanimation action. So this has a bunch of different uses in the format. Pretty unique card. Hasn't caught in a re- gotten a reprint in premium form. Yeah, seems reasonable. Timing's good. And the, the Fallout stuff next spring is just bonus. Well, I, I always like to have a target in mind these days because I don't, I don't like to just pick cards because they're good and cheap generally. But, you know, having the thing where rad uh, radiation counters and milling, this seems like something to go slam dunk in there. Here's one that might surprise some people. I'm pretty sure this was on cast maybe as one of my picks a couple of years back on the assumption that the stuff, the good rares, the highly playable rares from Modern Horizons 2 were going to take off in a hurry. But as it turned out, they kept that set in print for the better part of two years. And as a result, a lot of this stuff just didn't get there fast. You know, and look fit, at the prices on the uh, the fit. retrofoil fetchlands. Yeah. So the thing is, though, the Chargeless Agent isn't just seeing play in Rhinos anymore. Now it's in all these Beanstalk decks, and there's tons of those going around. So a bunch of players that weren't, that might have been on four-color Omnath not running Shardless are now running Shardless. And as a result, the foil borderless, the nicest version of Shardless, I think nicer than the retro foils, because uh, the art's quite good, is down to 29 listings, sitting in at around five or six bucks. And the ramp is pretty strong up towards 20. So I'm thinking this is also a like six to 12 to 15 dollar advancement that we're looking at for this given how much pressure is on this card right now if you look at the the price point on it it's been like a little bit of a roller coaster in the two to three dollar range right up until mid late september when the beanstalk deck started emerging and it has since almost doubled in price and i I don't see any reason why it's going to stop from here the only thing stopping me from being all over this card is that there's multiple premium versions to be like modern horizons 2 had retro foils of this yep and they aren't quite you know they've got the the other art it's got the original text which goes to either hard to read or classic depending on your viewpoint so there's a lot of other premium stuff out there there's also the foil etched copies that you could find and 
while I agree this is the prettiest, and it sure does have the, like, if you look at the graph for it, it was uh, like two bucks less at the beginning of October. So it is that hot, and I can see trying to cash in on that. I just don't know if it's going to go as high as you're picking, given the other number of copies out there. Like, if this breaks $10, or, I'm, well, I mean, if it's broken 10 you're already probably ready to sell out. But if this gets up into 8 or 9 then, you know, are people really going to look at these dollar fifty at the, you know, under a dollar copies of the etched foil and say that's not good enough? Those etched foils are real ugly. I'm not arguing how ugly they are. Well, that matters because for showcase appeal, it's it's important. And people, sure. if you're going to bother to foil out your, your four-color money pile deck, you're not going to use the ugly version. The... You're also just not going to use the cheap version, which is also an important thing. As long as it has the the imprimatur of being the expensive one. I think there is something for that. More to the point, your average retrofoil fetch sold a, a scant handful of copies last week, whereas the cheaper copies of Shardless Asian Borderless Foils sold 70-plus copies on TCG Player in the last seven days. That's a lot. Like, a that lot, a lot. lot. <laughs> so the pressure, the pressure is there. It is drying up. And we're just not that far away from this getting pushed up into the $15 to $20 range. And there is no relevant reprint on the horizon other than a potential and a secret layer or MH3 next summer. Given that it was an MH2, it's really only a maybe for MH3. Well, this is this borderless is the only other art at all. I mean, all the versions it's had exactly. from anthologies, Eternal Masters, there was a judge version in 2015. Yep. Like there was there's been a lot of versions they all use this weird upside down half metal person. So, I I see what you're saying and it's there. Uh I I hope that it it gets there. I'm looking at the judge promo sales pattern just to take a look. It's also been under a little more more pressure than normal. It was like selling once a week kind of thing. And now in October, it's more like two onesie twosie copies every day or two days. So there's significant upswing in the number of decks that want the Shardless Asian alongside the Beanstalk. And... As you said, this is the only differentiated art. I think a lot of people are reaching for it and will continue to do right. so. And you really only need from this point out another 100 or 200 people in North America to consider grabbing a play set. And these are just going to get pushed up into the, you know, 12 might be conservative. Honestly, I think this could land 15 to 20, just like the the Questing Druid. Now, this is Judge Foil from 2015. That's wild stuff. What What is... Yeah, it it was, and they started real high. Those those used to be started, quite, quite pricey. Yeah, this was a hundred dollar card when it first came out. So, all right, I'm I'm in with you. I see where you're coming from. I'm I'm down. I also happen to have some Japanese copies of these lying around. I'm pretty sure. So, cross my own fingers. Um, my other pick this week. Uh, I'm going deep on the the Fallout stuff. So here's something that uh, I'm going to end up writing an article about it this Friday, but. If you look at the released commanders, they released five of the commanders for the Fallout set. One of them in Mardu colors is Mr. House, the president and CEO of uh, the Lucky 57 or something like that. I don't remember exactly what number it was, but it was this big uh, stratosphere-looking tower. Did you play Fallout 4? Fallout New Vegas, I mean? I think so, but I don't think I finished it. All right. Oh, my God. Well... 
We'll talk about that later. But Mr. House is Mardu Colors. He's an artifact. He's a human. Whenever you roll a four or higher, create a 3-3 colorless robot artifact creature token. If you rolled six or higher, instead create that token and a treasure token. And he has four tap. Roll a d6 plus an additional d6 for each mana from treasure spent to activate this ability. What Mr. House does not say currently is that your roll has to be on a d6. So I'm thinking that the fallout, the people who build a Mr. House deck are going to want to build a dice rolling deck and they're going to want to roll some d20s because if you're rolling a d20 with Mr. House out, that means you are 75% to get at least a 3-3 robot and you are 66% to get a robot and a treasure. Now, there's a lot of fun ways to roll dice. Uh, the Ancient Dragons might see some movement as a result of this. But my favorite one is going to be uh, Delina the Wild Mage from Adventures in the Forgotten Realms. The long-suffering set that it is. You can get copies of Delina in Showcase Foil for around like $3, $3.50 is what I put down. Yeah, $3.50 in the Showcase, which is the monster manual frame for AFR. But because Delina's text says when she attacks, you get to uh, choose a creature you control and then roll a d20. And then you create a tapped and attacking token that's a copy of that creature, except it's not legendary. Well, that means you can target Mr. House. And you can get some more going on. And if you roll the 15 to 20, you create that token and you roll again. Is this magical Christmas thinking land? Yes, it absolutely is. Is that how commander players? Yeah, but that's what yeah. you're going to be going for in your Mr. House deck for sure. So I'm going to probably look into building a Mr. House rolls the dice deck. Uh, we're going to do all the Vegas gambling stuff. It's going to be phenomenal. And Delina copies are probably going to go crazy. I'm picking them to go three fifty to eight dollars. It's also worth saying that there's not a crazy amount of foils left for her. There's only seventy eight vendors in all conditions, and nobody has any huge, huge walls in foil. There's a couple folks with six or copies, and that's it. I don't think anybody's noticed that Mr. House doesn't say D six. Like you can roll any die. Roll a D100. I'm not convinced that the Mr. House themes are deep enough across the game for it to be a major commander. And as such, I would probably not go deep here. But on the assumption that people will do this, then your pick makes perfect sense. And the other one that would be alongside it would be Clown Car Galaxy Foils. There's a lot of those that, that those foils that are worth looking at and tune in for my article on Friday. Yeah, I mean, this one is $3 and it's a 1-1 one, one artifact vehicle for X. When it enters the battlefield, you roll X six-sided dice. For each odd result, create a 1-1 one, one white clown robot artifact creature token. For each even result, put a plus one, plus one counter on clown car. So you're rolling six six-sideds. You're probably going to get at least two fours and make two more three threes off Mr. Mister House. Seems good. Seems good. Well, the there's a Mardu commander for Caesar, or as they call him in the game, Kaisar for some reason. There may be copyright issues involved. I don't know. But that's a whole, like, based on attacking and sacrificing. So there's going to be two themes crammed into one deck. And I just don't know how well that's going to go together. Yeah. Because there's only four, there's only four command, uh, Fallout decks, right? Yep. So we'll see how many actual dice rolling cards we get. But it should be pretty awesome. And I'm looking forward to this. Oh, yeah, you're right. It's, Mr. House is not the the lead commander. It's Caesar, Dogmeat, Dr. Madison, Lee, and the Wise Mothman, as far as I can tell. 
Right. But we'll we'll get the extended art versions of things. He's just not a face card yet. He's not the face card of the commander deck. All right. So let's uh, let's talk a little bit more about this this these Fallout cards. They showed off a bunch of reprints with the the Pip Boy Pip Boy art on it. So there's an Arcane Signet, a Crucible of Worlds, which is certainly a notable reprint, uh, a Soul Ring and command tower and wasteland all of which i think will be popular it's it's fairly iconic art in the gaming world they also showed off this new card nuka-cola vending machine three mana for an artifact one tap create a food token whenever you sack a food create a tap treasure token oh boy this thing looks so busted it's very busted i hope this this stupid thing better come with an academy manufacturer that's all i got to say because basically anything that there are a bunch of sequences where you're going to generate, you know, you have an amulet of vigor, so the treasure tokens aren't coming in tapped. Sure. And then you've got some sure. way to untap the vending machine and do it all again. And there's just going to uh, be... tap two artifacts to untap an artifact. You know, there's yeah, there's and in the food deck, this is an auto include, and the art's ridiculous. So, hundred percent, that's going in there. That's a very very good card. Talking, speaking of the four commanders they showed off, Caesar Legion's Emperor is a one plus Mardu four four human soldier. Whenever you attack, you may sack another creature. When you do, choose two. Create two one one red and white soldier creature tokens with haste that are tapped and attacking. Or you draw a card and lose a life. Or Caesar Legion's Emperor deals damage equal to the number of creature tokens you control to target opponent. That's a fairly powerful Mardu tokens commander. And that's whenever you attack, he doesn't have to attack. Which is as key. As long as you want. Which is key. Yeah. Any ability that requires your commander to attack is always going to be significantly worse because you often don't have profitable attacks unless you've got the right stuff in play to either make them unblockable or clear the path. So, yeah, that, that's a fairly pushed Mardu Tokens commander. They also showed us Dog Meat Ever Loyal, which is Naya Colors for a 3-3 dog. It's a German Shepherd, so I'm sure it'll be popular. When dog meat enters the battlefield, mill five cards, then return an aura or equipment card from your graveyard to your hand. Whenever a creature you control that's enchanted or equipped attacks, create a junk token. And the junk tokens are cast stuff, exile the top card. We were talking about this in the Discord when it was revealed last week, and I was saying that th- this is one of the better tokens they've ever given. Like, treasure is still probably the top, but junk might now be the second best. Weren't we arguing about this versus a blood token? Was that the discussion we were having? Blood, blood is drawn, discard. That's not as good as... as Oh, clue. We were arguing about this versus a clue. Clue, yeah. And my argument was that for two, you get a card from a clue. But with this one, you just have to tap it and get access to a card. And yes, you have to cast it right away. And so my argument was in proactive decks, like say your Edgar Markovs, these junk tokens are going to be excellent. In a deck with a bunch of counter spells, you want it a lot less because you can end up hitting a card that you can't cast. Now, it is worth saying that junk tokens are only this turn, and you can only activate a junk token as a sorcery. So it is limited, but it is very, you know, it. this is why we were having this whole big argument about whether a junk token or a clue token is a better card. I mean, clues are already good, so if it's even in the same realm. <laughs> That's true. And, and I've played, there's a couple of different pro traders that play in the EDH pods with us that run a lot of cast from exile stuff, like value engines that are that are using essentially junk token mechanics, and they relentlessly powerful. Yeah. When you're set up to take advantage, it'll, it'll get there. 
Uh, they also showed Dr. Madison Lee, Jeskai Commander 2-3 Human Scientist. Whenever you cast an artifact spell, you get an energy. You pay an energy. Target creature gets plus one, plus zero, gains trample and haste until end of turn. Pay three energy, draw a card. Pay five, return target artifact card from your graveyard to the battlefield tapped. Uh, if they give her enough energy cards, you know, this this is the, the part that drives the Otherworks Marvel home. If they don't reprint Well, they didn't here. give us... They might give us uh, a secondary energy commander, but uh, this one doesn't have green in it, and a lot of the worst offenders for the energy decks were green-based. Mm-hmm. So we'll see how it does when we don't have green or black. So these are not quite as good as some of the, the stuff you're expecting to get busted right in half. It's sure. still very good. Let's Don't get me wrong. There's a lot of busted things you can do with this, but it's it's losing out on two of the more egregious colors. They also showed the Wise Mothman. One Sultai, 3-3 three, three Insect Mutant. Whenever it enters the battlefield or attacks, each player gets a rad counter. Whenever one or more non-land cards are milled, put a plus one, plus one counter on each of up to X target creatures, where X is the number of non-land cards milled this way. The rad counters make you mill at the start of your turn? So at the beginning of your pre-combat main phase, if you have any rad counters mill that many cards, for each non-land milled this way, you lose one life and you take a radiation counter off. And then they showed us Rad Storm to go with that. Three and a blue Storm Proliferate. Now, we get not only the Rad Storm, but we also get this uh, sweet uh, Pip-Boy frame that has uh, the... It's been a while since they really went crazy on the different font for the name of the card. Mm-hmm. But they went with this very, like, um, computer... Early, early, early 90s. 80s. Yeah, early 90s, yeah. like, computer font, yeah. There's a name for it. I don't know what the name is, but we get that in the power and toughness box as well. And new sweet art. It's all, this is great. I'm a big fan of this, especially because it's white text on black background. It's easy to read. This is really cool. And I'm looking, I love like Rad Storm is just two words, storm and proliferate. (laughs) Don't mess around with nothing else. I mean, in the right kind of attracts a deck that can just break, (laughs) break the game wide open. Yes, Absolutely. Uh, they also showed a, a pretty sweet kill spell. That's two double black. V-A-T-S, yes. Uh, split second, so nobody can respond to it at all. Choose any number of target creatures with equal toughness. Destroy the chosen creatures. Really nice if you're facing people that have a bunch of sack mechanics on, on board and you need to get rid of some key stuff. Really great if everybody just happens to have six, seven, eight creatures that all have the same toughness. And... You get to be very selective about leaving your best permanence on the table while you do it. Fun, fun, fun. I mean, you get to kill off uh, somebody's token army, step one. You get to, uh, as collateral damage, just deal with anything else with the same toughness. And the perhaps the best part is, if you're killing several things like this, uh, because it's split second, you don't have to worry about them taking 10 minutes in response to your uh, very unfairly good kill spell. I expect uh, VATS to be one of the chase cards in this whole set. Alpha Deathclaw, four black green for a 6-6 menace trample lizard mutant. It, when it enters the battlefield, you destroy target permanent. And then for seven, it becomes a 10-10. Uh, the funny thing is this will probably just slide right under the radar, even though 10 years ago, this would have been a fairly significant threat in the format. It really, yeah. Destroy target permanent. That's not even non-land. You want to kill a land? Go get down with your bad self. Get rid of a cradle or whatever. Yeah. Uh, I love the vault one. We're apparently going to get a saga for each one of the vault numbers. 
Uh, if you've been following the Fallout lore, then each vault has was like a different experiment. We know Vault 101 is the birthday party, and it's uh, Phase 1 is create a 1-1 soldier token and a food token, and then 2 and 3, put an aura or equipment from your hard hand or graveyard into the battlefield. If an equipment is put on this way, you may attach it to a creature you control. That is a powerful reload right there. Yeah. It's two different sweet equipment that come in free and re-equip. Yep, and you get a, a creature token and a food token up front. If you're playing token themes and you've got doublers and so forth, it's, it's good right out of the gate. Do you think over-encumbered is as good as I want it to be? I want it to be really good. I was just staring, at, I, I was just staring at that. This is an enchant opponent aura, one in a white. When it enters the battlefield, the opponent gets a clue, a food, and a junk. And at the beginning of combat on enchanted opponent's turn, that player may pay one for each artifact they control. If they don't, creatures can't attack this combat. I mean, it's really good against the artifact decks. You play this against my Brea deck, and I'm in trouble. Like, I just can't get you. And you can also play it against people that like to hoard treasures or clues for their their relevant commanders that are, are trying to win through that process. And probably a, pre- a a minor player because it's so conditional on what's in the pod you're in that you're facing right it's just such perfect flavor it's everything you want you're giving them stuff here's some stuff here's some stuff here's some stuff now pay for it i love everything about this they also revealed that the serial chase cards for this are going to be the bobbleheads from the game which is very inside baseball unless you've played the game and the one they showed off is Intelligence Bobblehead for three. It's an artifact. Taps for one mana of any color. And then five tap draw X cards where X is the number of bobbleheads you control. If they had done this with two casting cost artifacts where it comes into play and you choose a color or something and it was therefore, you know, potentially a replacement for an arcane signet or something, these would have been a much bigger deal. As it stands, I'm not convinced that anyone's going to be chasing these cereals because they seem to me like they're going to play like shrines where you have to stock a deck full of them to make it really worth it. And then Mm -hmm. it's still going to just be a lot of effort to just get effects that you could have gotten anyway in in other ways. So if you remember, there's going to be seven of these. Yeah. So the idea here is that if you get one, you might want all the others, but I'm just not buying it because I just don't think there's going to be enough of a overlapping Venn diagram among magic pl- collectors that want the bobbleheads. Because you have to have be a magic player that also played these games and loves them enough that you care about the bobbleheads and you're willing to shell out potentially thousands of dollars to get all seven. That's true. Uh, but your, That's tough sell. your beef with this is uh, I've, I have a, a bigger problem with this aside from the, the mana cost. Like I imagine that they made this one cost more because it's the card drawing one. I would easily believe that some of the others cost one, two, or four, depending on what effects they put on there. Oh, or they could be. I don't think they made them all necessarily the same casting cost. I think they probably played around with the uh, activation costs to get the X effects. Okay. But the the thing that really bugs me is, yet again, we've got serialized and the regular version having the same art. And they could have done so many other amazing things with this, and they chose not to. Well, especially since they have the alternate art. Right. Pip-Boy art, at least. There should have been unique Pip art for the bobbleheads. 
why don't why are we getting like an etched foil version to be the the serialized version i don't know i'm i'm i get cranky old man about things like this so i i just think that this is a mistake uh, i think people are going to collect these i think it'll be worth it on the bobbleheads there will definitely be some kind of like bobblehead case where if you've got this many you put this effect into play it'll be awesome there'll be some reason to collect them all they will give us some reason to do that i think I guess the biggest sell call I see here, aside from Crucible of Worlds, is Wasteland. Wasteland is a $20 card. It's not going to be a $20 card after this comes out. Nope. Uh, We don't know what the drop rates are going to be, but this is going to be for Commander decks plus the Collector Boosters, just like with Doctor Who. It's not going to be full set like Lord of the Rings, but we are going to get a lot of these potentially. And once we know more about what's coming, we'll probably be able to tell you how many Wastelands are coming based off of what drop rate we get for the uh, serialized cards. It is possible they list it as a mythic in the CBs because the last printing of it was in Secret Lair and it was listed as as mythic there. But at minimum, you're getting regular copies in the decks. And and that deck as a result is probably, whichever deck that's in is probably going to be the deck that's worth the most. I mean, Wasteland's been mythic. It's been rare. Um, in the original Tempest, well, was it uncommon? the The only time it's been rare was Eternal Masters. Yeah. So all I, I can all the other them... printings are either promo because you have the Magic Player Rewards, the Judge promo, and the Zendikar Expeditions, or well, for... the Secret Lair. We've also got the. Uh, this was in the Realms and Relics set that we just got out of uh, Lord of the Rings under a different so name. Yeah. Yeah, so we are getting some more surge foils of these with the holiday edition. Ah, very, get... very good point. So yeah, wastelands have to be a hard sell at the moment. I would, I would be selling that. But the thing is, if you bought a surge foil wasteland already, then um, you're you're thinking about how you need to sell that before Lord of the Rings comes out, anyhow. All right. So the other big news that leaked today, apparently not on the preferred schedule, is that. Wizards has completed negotiations on a fairly large-scale partnership that will launch in 2025 with Marvel, as in Disney, as in, I guess, Lurkana didn't mark that as off-limits like a lot of people thought it might, including me. I mean, there's a whole game about Marvel that's already on uh, mobile, uh, you know, Marvel Snap, so like... Having this be an option for in-person Paper Magic the Gathering is surprising for both those reasons. So obviously this is a pretty big deal. Um, If you think that Lord of the Rings being either the top-selling set of all time or very close to it, probably by the time, if you include the holiday release, it's got to be the top-selling set of all time, was a big deal. When you consider all of the, the free press they got, out of the chase for the one ring, out of it being found here in Toronto, out of Post Malone purchasing it for reportedly $2 million. That's tip of the iceberg. The Marvel fan base is second only to Pokemon worldwide. There's a very good reason why Disney went after that property, because they saw that the heroes of the next generation were not going to be Mickey Mouse, they were going to be Spider-Man and, and his amazing friends. So, 
this is a really big deal to come at the end of billions of dollars of movie franchising that is still an ongoing process. Disney's got its own streaming channel. It's putting out fresh content all the time. You know, no, there, there's almost there's four no, or five more Marvel movies by the time this comes out. Yeah, and there's, there's almost no way this goes wrong. It's it, it's actually really easy <laughs> to do this with Marvel characters. They've done it for so many other properties so far. You know, Stranger Things, Street Fighter, Walking Dead, Lord of the Rings, Doctor Who, Fallout, and so on and so forth. That they, they they just know how this process is going to work. They've got it pretty dialed, and as a result, you're going to get all these people chasing serials way, way, way harder than they're going to chase these Pip-Boy things. Or the Doctor Who character from the late 70s or whatever. That's pales in comparison to what's going to happen when they, they tell us that, okay, so yeah, there's this Infinity Gauntlet one-of-one one card, but to get it, you have to enter a draw. And the way you enter the draw is you have to find each of the infinity stones, which are one in 3,000 or something. And you find one of those infinity stones in your CB. You got to go around and buy the other four. And then you can send all five of those cards into such and such an address and using our courier. And you'll be entered into a draw with like 27 other people to get the gauntlet. My only beef with what you said is that there's six Infinity Stones. But yes, I, what, I see where you're going with this, and I like it. However many Infinity Stones there are. The <laughs> bottom line, they're, they're going to do something presumably next level that takes the whole one-of-one one ring concept one step further. And I like your optimism on this. I like your, your mm-hmm. feeling that Wizards is definitely not going to do something under-powered and uh, low-energy and... You know, same frame stuff. It's not you know, just what? them. These apparently th- these relationships are very hands on. I heard a rumor this week that there was supposed to be some big free product giveaway on the Lord of the Rings holiday stuff to LGSs uh, that was scheduled for Q4 this year, and it got vetoed by the estate. Really? Because oh. they were worried it was going to it would undercut the value of the product which was clearly a massive miss on their part because it does none of it doesn't do that at all (laughs) and and it's not like they are you know giving it to goodwill they are distributing (laughs) through stores and swallowing it as a marketing expense so you know if that's true a miss on the estates part but the most interesting part of it isn't that this thing might have happened it's that they had the that the contract allowed for that the, level yeah. of control. And if that's what the Lord of the, the Tolkien estate control looks like, what do you think Disney's control looks like? I think it looks pretty terrifying, but I imagine that this was considering the Lorcana and the presence of Marvel Snap. I imagine that Wizards is willing to jump through an awful lot of hoops in order to be able to give us Iron Man cards. The, the licensing is going to be super expensive. That means the product will be at least as expensive as Lord of the Ring boxes, if not more so. I mean, and, that's two years away. We're we're due for a price increase before then. And my guess is that in the conversation leading up to this, they were like, yeah, we're really impressed with what you did with the One Ring. We're assuming you're going to do something like that with us? Yes. But you're going to do it better, right? Yes. I mean, that's that's the conversation you're having at that <laughs> And then the onus is on you to figure out what exactly you're going to do. But yeah, somebody's job is going to be to figure out how to one up the one ring. 
How to one-up the One Ring. I think your your idea about collecting the Infinity Stones is a good one. There's a lot of Marvel plot lines they could use from the comics. Uh, we'll have gotten some... I don't remember the phases or anything like that right now. But uh, I think that going with the best-known crossover giant movie event of the last 40 years... I think going for the Infinity Stones is probably where you want to be. The other thing they can do is, I mean, there's so much of this that just works very naturally now Now that we know what's happening. The, the other thing they can do with serials is that in the comics collecting world, there's this thing called key issues, which is like the first appearance of so-and-so and whatever. And it's not always the first issue of the comic. Sometimes it's, you know, Incredible Hulk 182 or something. I don't know if that's one of them, but Wolverine appears. You know, like a character often appears not in their own book to start with. And one of the things they could do for serials is have iterations of, you know, alternate art versions of, you know, a Venom card, a Spider-Man card, a Wolverine card or whatever. But the art is the first appearance cover. That seems like a really great way to do that. And then the serial and then the serial number those that will be so huge because that will bring in comic collectors, not just Marvel fans who watch the movies on their couch, but the people that are diehard comic fans that collect keys. It, you know, like my buddy, he owns half a million dollars worth of comics and he has all these keys. But if I'm like, hey, the, the magic, remember, remember what they did with Lord of the Rings? And he's one of those guys who definitely was not paying attention to magic, but caught wind of the Lord of the Rings thing and went out and bought some boxes in his, in his neighborhood. He will absolutely go chasing these key magic cards if they do anything even remotely like that. And even if it's as simple as people just collecting the characters they love, your Deadpools, your Wolverines, your X-Men, your Avengers, whatever, folks are just going to want to lock those down because they're already fans of those characters. The other question that occurs to me that I didn't see in all the assorted articles about this, I just saw that there was a partnership. You might be able to answer this. Is this going to, was there any indication about this being one set or is this like an ongoing? No, it sounded like it's multiple releases, which makes sense. Like if you're going to do it, you may as well do, may may as well do it well. And I think compared to Lord of the Rings, the lore from Marvel is so, so, so much deeper. You know, Lord of the Rings is basically based around four books. And then you've got the Cimmerillion and a couple of other like supporting things that Tolkien wrote. Marvel has literally millions of issued comics since the the sixties or whatever, and at least 30 or 40 characters that are household names. You know, a lot of people were arguing with me on, on social media today about how, Oh, Oh no, it's the final nail in the coffin. Like wizards is giving up the ghost on our IP. And pretty soon there'll be no original IP on magic. And it's like, first of all, they had 30 years to get their shit together on that. And they didn't. (laughs) and none of the magic characters are a household name they're not even close because there's never tried real hard but no yeah they they... well they didn't i mean it is a valid argument to critique wizards management of that part of their brand and say they could have done way more i mean there was this netflix show they promised that never showed up and then you see the critical role show on amazon do incredibly well and be it's super well received and great animation super funny the castlevania show that's on netflix right now is like the third or fourth season of that and absolutely incredible 
And yeah, the problem has never been the the stories and the characters. The problem has been the way it's been presented. Like, remember the um, like three minute uh, animated thing for uh, the second Kamigawa set, Neon Genesis. Ka- I keep Neon Dynasty. Neon Genesis. <laughs> Neon Dynasty. Yeah, the animated thing was really great, and they also did really good pieces for the War of the Spark intro and a bunch of other stuff. So the potential was always there for them to build the media side of the brand equation and attempt to make something a household name or at least make it something that a 16-year-old would recognize. You know, your 18 to 24-year-old market. Just to make the characters cool. Sure. And and they failed. Now, they can they still did. do it. They may well still do it. There is still the opportunity there, yeah. Part part of growing the brand and increasing revenue and increasing profits and making booster co- packs more expensive and doing all this licensing stuff that is expensive, but in theory is a net net win. Like somebody t- tried to tell me on Twitter today that they're going to lose money on this. And I was like, you're mental cakes. That's not how it works. You need to clean up your Twitter followers there, buddy. Like you, there's not room in the day for this. If, if they put out something like Lord of the Rings and they know after the fact that, yeah, we, we had to spend X percentage more on this because we had to do a licensing share on, on revenues. Then if that ends up being insufficient versus their internal objectives, they're just going to increase the price of the boxes. <laughs> like yep. they're not going to lose more money on Marvel than they did in Lord of the Rings. They're going to make sure they get their bone. And and one of the ways that can happen is that even if box prices don't go up, they calculate that they're going to sell 50% more boxes than they normally would because Marvel is such strong IP. Right. And as a result... And having proven they know they can do that, both with the 40K premium decks and then to a much greater extent, the Lord of the Rings at this summer, they you know, don't, don't have a lot to be scared of. They, they're, they're, this is going to be hard to fail. They're gonna, and so as a result, in answer to your hard question. Hard to fail. There, I like that. There's going to be secret layers. There's going to be, yeah, there's going to be one giant set, probably summer 2025. It's a little... There's a little bit of question marks around, wasn't that supposed to be when the Final Fantasy set was scheduled? So it's unclear whether it's Final Fantasy in like May and then the late summer release is going to be Marvel Masters. Marvel Masters, that rolls off the tongue. That could very well be, (laughs) that could very easily be the set name. Could be Marvel Masters in the late summer. It could be the Final Fantasy thing has been axed. It could have been that it got moved to some other slot. I guess we'll see as we get closer. But the bottom line is there'll be, you know, commander decks and secret layers and ancillary sets and whatever. And they'll drag it out as long as they possibly can. Because as I said, the lore is super, super deep. They could do a set. They could just start with X-Men. You know what I'm saying? Like, they don't have to I was going to say, like, what secret layers would I go crazy for? Like, you give me a secret layer with, like, the 90s X-Men yep. cartoon characters on it. That'll work. I will pay, like, $80 for that in some stupid foil to get nine cards or whatever. Yeah. It's going to be very, very popular. And all of them are going to sell well. But the point is they can go as narrow or as wide as they want. And they have so much flexibility. So I would imagine they're going to drag it out for a couple years. And people are like, oh, you know, Lord of the Rings published twice in six months. Well, I mean... Hold my hold my beer is was his response to that. They've they've got. <laughs> I'm sure they're looking to drag out like Spider Man for four sets by himself. So, I, I think it's a really good thing for the game. I, I get that there are people that find the whole thing jarring. That in their mind, magic was about a specific kind of tone, squarely rooted in fantasy. 
But as someone who plays with the across from these universes beyond cards every week, that absolutely thought it was going to be jarring when Travis and I first started talking about it some years ago. It's not. It's just not a big deal, dude. It just isn't. It's just not a big deal. It just isn't. People table the cards like because when you're playing a game of Commander, for instance, there are three hundred cards in three different decks that you've got to track on top of your own. So you very quickly, your brain just switches into mechanic mode. You're just looking at stat yeah. lines. You're looking at card types. You're figuring out what effect impacts what. And the much bigger issue, I, I think, in casual EDH play is that nobody recognizes any cards anymore. <laughs> because right. there's so many that new as cards well. so frequently. As opposed to, oh, no, that's a Doctor Who card that's throwing me off. Because the thing is that yeah. even inside Magic's own IP... The pro- proliferation of different styles, art styles, and um, variants already has disrupted the aesthetic uh, core of the game. And if they had yep. never done Universes Beyond at all, that the alternative would almost certainly have been to expand that even further. So one way or the other, the days of everything kind of being uniform and everyone knowing pretty much all the cards are just gone. They're, they're way behind us. We are absolutely moving into the foretold future that I've talked about for years on this cast, which is where a lot of players will only know a small percentage of the cards, even in their chosen formats, because they're just printing so many cards so frequently. But that's Don't like ever a, feel bad about having to ask to read somebody's card. Don't ever feel bad. I mean, you're drowning in gold in this scenario. Like, you can't really complain that your game of choice has infinite game pieces, and and every <laughs> and every deck at every EDH pod you wander into is going to be some fresh experience. I don't think that's a bad thing. It's definitely tougher for onboarding, but it's just so obvious that that they're expecting to to go into super committed overlapping fan bases like marvel like comics and draw on a bunch of people that are you know that have spent thousands of hours researching the exact page number of a issue from 40 years ago where a certain character appears you know that's the kind of person that might be willing to put the time and effort into playing your game if you give them a good reason to and here's one of the interesting things marvel there have been many many marvel card games over the years some bet some great some bad some started good, then kind of degraded. It's actually a very stabilizing influence for the people that want to play a card game and want to do it with Spider-Man to know that it's on the Magic the Gathering platform, which is proven, tried and true. This game's mechanics work. The rules system works. There's a couple little wonky spots, but they're never that tough to work out. And as a result, you can you're going to be able to reliably play your Marvel Magic cards for 10 years. Whereas if they put out some random Marvel game tomorrow, like a, a, a print version of Snap, it may or may not live two years or more. Who knows? But Magic's, you know, pillar of the community. So I, I think it's very good for Marvel fans to know that they can play Magic the Gathering as the platform by which they, you know, fight X-Men versus Avengers. I can't... I'm, I'm really... Uh happy that this is two years out because we can have a lot of these talks way beforehand and when we get to the actual like time when they tell us about the cards and what they're going to do that we can focus on that and uh be past all of this sky is falling crap because you know if it hasn't fallen yet i'm not sure anything short of like here we're just going to reprint everything for a dollar 
as our last gasp uh, will ever cause this. I mean, there there are still risks. Like, I'm not I'm, I'm not trying to tell people that there are zero risks in Magic: The Gathering or or MTG Finance right now. That's not true. The the reprint cadence is probably too high, and they will run out of runway on that. Mm-hmm. However, they have full control to adjust as necessary to pull back on that. And and one of the ways that they can facilitate that is by printing a bunch of new Spider-Man cards that have never been printed before <laughs> that people are gaga over and give some breathing room to not reprint some other staples. So I look forward to playing Modern in the summer of 2026 where you're playing like Venom versus Beanstalk. Oh, you think Beanstalk will be legal in 26? That's interesting. No, no I think that. Definitely do not. If I had to pick one <laughs> card that will not be legal in 2026, it would probably be be in stock. So That's funny stuff. The other part of this that I think is people need to key in on is that if Marvel was fair game, when I was certain that Lorcana would have tried at least to prevent anybody else from having a relevant license while they potentially had access to those characters and it's not even clear that they do we don't know anything from Lorcanon about whether they're going to be dipping into marvel and star wars the big disney properties that are not you know mickey and bell and whatever but whether or not they are now magic is so that means that star wars is also fair game like i would not be in the Mm -hmm. slightest bit surprised to find out that in 2027 or 2028 we're getting star wars the gathering and that will be just as big as the Marvel thing, or very close to it. It it's it. They're all in the realm of each other. I mean, if you think of the the single largest IP franchises around, like we're talking Marvel, we're talking Star Wars, we're talking Disney, and Disney has proven its mastery over all things merchandising over the years. And so, like this does open that door. Now we don't, like you said, we don't know exactly what the rules are, especially with Lorcana, if they don't want competing things. Lorcana is on its second set. They need to grow themselves out more. I don't think that this is a, a bet against Lorcana if you are Disney who's doing the licensing. Orders are already being taken for the fifth or sixth set for Lorcana from distributors. So we know it's going to be around for at least two years. So we know it's going to be there. And the question is, did Disney say, well, uh, Magic, you can have your crack at Marvel and then... Four years later, two years later, uh, Lorcana is going to do its own crack at Marvel, and we'll see how uh, who does what. It, it strikes me as they just don't see any reason to limit it. If both games can sell side by side without cannibalizing each other, then which they seem to believe is possible, or they don't care if there's some cannibalization, like overlap of those Venn diagrams. If Lorcana steals a little bit of the magic community, maybe magic steals a little back from Lorcana, you know what I'm saying? So... Well, if Disney's just doing the licensing, then they don't really care about either one. Well, they care, but they're they're clearly not willing to give them a security fence. Yeah, they're not. Exclusives don't seem to be on the table. And and if that's true, then so much else is. It's even got me wondering whether one day we will see some little side project thing where Magic and Pokemon exchange IP. Like you get some Pokemon cards with some Magic characters on them. And you get some magic cards with some Pokemon characters on them. Just we got be- dual ju- masters overlap. Why not yeah, Pokemon? Yeah, just because they could. Like Pokemon is the number one entertainment brand in the world. 
It's bigger than Star Wars, bigger than Disney, bigger than Marvel. It's bigger than everything. But And so they don't owe anybody anything and they don't need to do anything. But that project sounds really cute and probably isn't really a threat to either of them in either direction. Like they really do focus on different segments of the world. Like right. they, there's not a tremendous amount of overlap between Pokemon and Magic players. Pokemon adults are collecting Pokemon stuff more than they're playing. Like my my little brother's, you know, early 30s, two kids, and he's in that boat. Very nostalgic about Pokemon. But, he, you know, he, he owns more Pokemon stuff than he ever touches or plays with. And Whereas Magic <laughs> is very much a player's game for the most part, with collectability being a secondary thing. So I think, I don't think there's any really great reason for them not to do a project at some point. And the more, the, the better the Magic partnership pedigree becomes, you know, now they're working directly with Marvel. Star Wars seems very likely. They did Lord of the Rings. That's, that's pretty strong. So you're at least going to give them the time of day when they want to come in for a meeting. <laughs> All right. That's, that's a good way to put that. I will definitely give you the time of day when you want the meeting. Alrighty, we're going to move on over to a bonus segment. We have been trying to schedule this for a few weeks now and get this lined up. We've got a Pro Trader member, uh, Nathan, who is going to join us to talk about his collection, his objectives in uh, MTG Finance, and we're going to try to give our best crack at advice live and in person. So let's go get Nathan. Alrighty, Nathan, welcome to the cast, my friend. How are you? Good. How are y'all doing tonight? Very good, very good. You've been a pro trader almost since the start of the Discord, I believe. Oh, I th- I think before that, uh, I think the Discord was a twinkle in your eye before I was the, <laughs> uh, a member back. I don't even know. I think I might have joined MTG Price around the same time that you bought it. It's hard to know exactly. Yeah, so we'd be talking about like 2016, 2017 kind yeah, of thing? Yeah, yeah. Gotcha. And you have always been a presence in the Discord as somebody who is on top of statistics, on top of tracking their own inventory and specs, um, somebody who is a fact-driven participant in MTG Finance. Would that be a fair assessment? Yeah, totally. Uh, I actually, I just had a, a micro conversation with Cliff uh, just before you hopped on about some some feeling driven specs that didn't work out. But I think for the most part, yeah, it's it's always like numbers based and MTG, uh, yeah, data driven. I think as much as I can. We we've all certainly made some gut choices that have not worked out. The <laughs> But tonight, what what we're looking to do is you've provided a pretty detailed list of your existing inventory. And you and I have had a little bit of a preface conversation where you were explaining to me uh, 
what your current objectives are with MTG Finance. Could you share that with the listeners in terms of what you're trying to do over the next few years as pertains to your collection? Yeah, uh, I'll I'll just try to provide a little bit of background to give some context without being too verbose about it. Um, I've been collecting and speculating for something like seven or eight years now. And years ago, I had more time and money to put into this sort of thing. And um, back before the booster fund era, um, there was, you know, certain certain models for speculating that that worked well, um, that it doesn't quite feel like they do anymore. And so as, as time passes, as the game changes, as my time involvement in speculating goes down and the money that I put into it goes down and um, just, I guess, you know, magic is a hobby like anything else. And we all know and have been there where uh, your interest in it waxes and wanes over time and i yeah I, I guess i'm just wanting to set it a little bit on the back burner for a while and um it feels hard to do when you have uh many thousands of dollars of assets like tied up in a collectible cardboard game and so in, in this era where um everything seems to be getting reprinted at a at a, quite a significant rate, um, kind of just letting things rot in boxes and binders and selling slowly over time, um, passively, I think is probably the keyword, um, is just kind of not super viable for me anymore. And I'm kind of at a junction in my life right now where I, even if it meant taking a loss, like I'm almost just considering kind of unloading everything all at once and, or, you know, 90, 95% of my collection and specs and just kind of moving on from it, um, just to kind of be out from it and to not have to be, you know, F5ing the, um, the spoilers page to see which of my specs got, uh, hammered into the ground. (laughs) So great way to put that. So we should probably clarify that you are not unlike some of our other members, not a vendor. You don't work for a vendor. No. You don't. Uh, you're not a TCG direct member, so you're not. You don't have a significant volume. Your sales platform of choice, you told me, is TCG Player. That's correct. Yes. Yeah, TCG Player, but not direct. Correct. Right, and you don't sell on eBay. You don't sell on Facebook. Don't sell locally. No, I I tried locally and facebook once upon a time as well but that just became this like i don't know wild goose facebook's the worst it's, it was i didn't it was so frustrating man like i literally have phone numbers in my phone like contacts that are saved as like this guy scams mtg do not respond because like he would come up multiple times over the years um yeah right it's i kind of just stayed out of the local stuff and it's it's more convenient to you know drop off a letter with the postman than it is to try to meet up with some rando on Facebook. Gotcha. And so you're even on TCG player, you're selling pretty casually, right? You said, told me you're selling maybe $20 a day. Yeah. Something. It, it depends on the time of year, but I think overall on an annual basis on the order of like one sale per day, um, these days, you know, a couple of years ago, certainly in 2021, that was much higher. Um, but, most of the time, yeah, yeah. 
And so we're talking about inventory that's shifting ten or fifteen thousand dollars worth a year, something like that. Yeah, it's it's about on that order. I I haven't punched it into a, a calculator yet this year, but that's um, that's kind of what my uh, my annual TCG player, uh, whatever that statement that they give you at the end of the year says. Sales statement, yeah, sure. Yeah. yeah. Right. Your your tax statement. Mm-hmm. So the so. If that's your sales, what's the total value of the collection to, collection to the best of your guesstimation? It's, Are we talking about it's twenty five thousand, fifty thousand, yeah, hundred thousand dollar collection? Somewhere on that order of like twenty five to forty thousand at this point is my my best estimate. Um, I I keep telling myself that I'm gonna put it all into a a spreadsheet and just get the market value for it, um, but I have yet to get around to actually like punching all that in gotcha so the bottom line is you are looking to exit and the only question is or at least maybe not everything i'm like are you keep getting out of magic as a hobby or are you going to keep your personal decks what's the plan yeah i've got a few binders um like my my playset binders and collection binders and a handful of decks from different formats that I would certainly keep. Um, and then I would probably hold on to some of my higher end stuff as well, like reserve list and my foil Amano Liliana uh, that I acquired way back when. Um, nice. But then... Am I mistaken, or did you get that in a group by? No, I got that Warbox. from. Oh yes, yes. Uh, it was, it was a. I don't remember exactly the initiation of it, but it was a raffle of sorts. Am I allowed to say that word? Uh, raffle that occurred in the in the MTG Price Discord, and the person who won it um, traded it to me. Basically, everybody wins there. I love it. Because I know that I know that one of those was opened on stream by one of the people in Japan that we were working that with. That was that one, yeah. Right. That was the one, right? Yes. Yeah. So it was opened live, and I think I, I think I actually called it as it happened. Because uh, I was on. You just need to just stop that stuff right now, James. <laughs> like you opened a serialized doctor on stream for everybody. This wasn't yeah, even was, James, was... though. It was like it was the the boots on the ground in Japan. Yeah. Yeah, it was my spirit twice removed yeah. in Japan, but yeah. So, so that was, and that's an interesting card. And um, we'll probably probably touch on that a little bit more uh, later, because it's it's had interesting price movement. But the point is, you're going to keep some stuff yourself. You're not getting out of the, the hobby completely, but the right. majority of your spec speculation driven inventory, you're now looking to unwind. And so the only question for you is, do I buy list it all at once? versus slow roll it to to take advantage of potentially selling at a higher retail price above buy list for some of the key pieces i would imagine correct and the latter part of what you just described has been my strategy for the last couple of years uh i submit basically like a biannual buy list to card kingdom and then um just do onesie twosie sales daily over the course of the year and have yet to make the decision on whether I want to just unload everything all at once at a GP or a magic con or something. Sure. So 
If we're talking about, you know, you said, told me off cast that you spend about an hour a week on this stuff and that you don't have a tremendous amount more time that you could devote to it, even if you wanted to. So assuming that the elasticity on your time spent is no more than a couple of hours a week, how do you decide what to sell next? Like when you sit down to list something on TCG player, what typically is the impetus for that, that action to occur? Uh, A lot of it without, um, being a shill over here is just like scrolling through the uh the discourse in the discord um based on don't you dare feel bad about that. well you know it's like <laughs> it's good information like other people pay attention so that i don't have to um exactly i mean i had i had the exact same experience today because dave mhb dave in the discord made a bunch of money on rousing refrain and when I first looked up the card, I was like, oh, it's a C21 card. I don't think I bought those decks, and I just kind of glossed over it. But then I realized that Rousing Refrain, was at, the extended art version, was actually in the Strixhaven Collector Boosters, and I certainly opened enough of those. So sure enough, I had a couple of those sitting around. That could be a free $40, and that is exactly because Dave was posting about his sales. Yeah, I. Um, it, it's, it's so hard to, without just continuing to hammer on this it's it's really difficult to keep track of what sets are coming out when because the velocity of everything is so great right now but like as an example right. i just look at my desk and i see a copy of of gishath um i remember at some point somebody was like oh yeah uh the new ixalan set's going to be coming out in a couple months and so i grabbed like two or three copies at like like 20 bucks probably two to three months ago and now i think i sold one yesterday for 45 um just like yeah that's nice good job yeah just just things like that where it's it's mostly just predicated on like what's on the horizon um if my if i have my finger quickly enough on the trigger when spoilers happen i can you know sometimes try to offload stuff and buy lists but a lot of it is just yeah it's it's just kind of trying to see like what Eldrain Year, years ago I I bought a bunch of fairies for uh I think it was like MH1 or something when or maybe no you know what it was the first Eldrain everyone's like oh man it's the first time fairies have been reprinted in forever so I bought a bunch back then most of them never sold and then when I saw that Wilds of Eldrain was coming out again I was like okay like time to dust the stack off so just yeah, it's monitoring chatter in the Discord is, is my primary way. And you're unhappy with what you're currently doing. It's more time than you want to spend for not enough uh, profit, for not enough sales? Uh, no, it's not so much the time. Like, I can do an hour a week. I could do a handful of hours per week. But it's more so the fact that, like, I feel like now more than, say, three to five years ago... Um, the value of what I have in my binders and boxes uh, is passively losing money at a rate at a higher rate than it used to because of all of the new releases and reprints and things like that. And to maybe like pivot off of that, like I don't have the time to be super agile and just keep my finger on the pulse of everything constantly and be buying and selling in a very, agile way in that form so i guess yeah it's i don't have double digit amount of hours per week to put into it and it feels like that's probably what it would take in order to be more of a viable seller in today's market yeah to, to not get caught out 
and be stuck, unable to say buy list, a doubling season if they announced the third printing of the card in, in a year <laughs> yeah. and five years ago, that would just never have happened. <laughs> right. So, I mean, that makes perfect sense. And that's a, a, a sentiment that we've heard echoed many times in the last couple of years from from people that are doing this either as a side business, as their main business, or as a hobby, that there you know, is an increasing level of frustration at the reprint cadence and some of the choices being made thematically instead of with regard to an understanding of what an appropriate cadence probably looks like for key rares and mythics in the market. And then there's also been things like, you know, you and I have talked offline before about Modern Horizons 2 and how everybody just kind of assumed, for instance, that fetch lands were going to be the biggest Mm. no-brainer spec in the universe. And then instead they kept the set in print for basically two years. Yeah. Those price graphs for were fetches just... was just like every. I, f- I feel like every two to three months, we would have a conversation, or somebody would have a conversation in the Discord that was like, "Man, I feel like now's a good time to buy into fetches." Like this, this, we're at their bottom, right? And then, sure enough, like two to three months later, like that graph just keeps going down. Just kept going down. Yeah. I I surely have enough uh, retro frame foils. From Modern Horizons 2 of those laying around and uh you know I've I've certainly got my fair share of fetches sitting in my boxes so I I see exactly what you mean by that especially with like um you know we looked at I looked at them and said like look how cheap they are compared to where they were this has got to be it and then they they kept falling down after I bought them which yeah. you know it's one of those great feelings the funny thing is the retrofame foil fetches are not that easy to pull and you can get a misty rainforest right now for $27 on TCG player. Mm. And Retro still, frame and foil misty. Yeah. And there, and there's, I still, haven't looked at them in so long. Please tell me you're kidding. No, that's, that's the real number. Oh man. And they're kind of warning. There's guy. 75 listings. So if they were to Holy print them crap. any time, any time in the next year to two years, they would just undercut it again. Yeah. I think, Something that Cliff said a second ago, like made me, it's a thought that I've had so many times recently is like the, the old mantras of like, well, they can only reprint it so many times or, you know, it can only go down so far because look at the price history. It's like price histories of a card now, at at least to me, it feels like is less of a, a strong indicator of what a a price will do or can do long-term because Right. At least for the fetches, for example. Yeah, like f- six, seven years ago. After MM17, right? Like they got reprinted and they basically immediately went back up. But then... Three months later. Right back up. Yeah. Yeah. But that's like, that didn't happen with MH2 at all. And I feel like that's true of a lot of different types of cards. Is Well, I, I think that Modern Horizons 2 uh, caught a lot of us by surprise. We didn't expect them to constantly trickle the amounts out there that have been going out there. And that's a, a whole other conversation we can have on a, a different day. Mm-hmm. I wanted to ask you, you mentioned that you send uh, a big buy list once or twice a year. Uh, what has stopped you from just saying, uh, screw it and shipping a giant amount of this off? You said you wanted to keep some stuff, keep your higher end things. But what has what has stood in your way of doing the honkin' honkin' buy list? Um, I think it is mostly just the way that I would perceive it to be losing quite a, you know, I could, I could sell everything at, let's call it a CK average of 50% of TCG low. And I would probably lose a lot of money and that would like, 
that would get me out of of from from under the the cards and not to say that it's a, a burden or a weight or anything like that but like it's <clears throat> i suppose it's it's more so the fact that i i feel like i can financially stand to just sort of keep piecemealing it out and like i don't need to sell them all right now how about that like i i okay i, I don't need all of that money right now um but it's it's sort but the of... weight of all of these cards sitting in your boxes and binders and you're like, oh my God, I have so much money tied up in these. Like what, right. what can I get for them now? Yeah. I know exactly the feeling you're talking about, bro. And uh, I could, I could fill hours with discussions of uh, some specs that have gone wrong and that are, uh, I'm tapping my foot on right now. Some of you underneath my desk. I do have a couple of, methodology things that i use for buy list versus sell because i have a six-figure ebay business these days and still buy list 30 or forty thousand a year uh, mostly with ck so one of the things i do is and i've talked about this in discord many times and on cast i don't sell anything sub ten dollars so on tcg player a lot of our vendors especially the ones that are direct are happy to do that because it can the math still works if they sell, buy a bunch of things at a dollar and end up selling on direct at four minus the the fees and the shipping, that's all kind of automatically deducted. It still works. It's still free money in their pocket, and there's no reason not to do it. My model is different. I don't have. I don't sell on TCG Player. So if I'm going to sell it on eBay, I want to make sure that it's worth it for me to prep the envelope, put the stamp on, and drop it off. And given that, as with a lot of our members, you know, I have a family, I have a day job that's plenty busy, uh, you know, on its own, as I'm sure, you know, both of you do, I, I've just drawn that line in the sand. And I think one of the things you could look at for exiting from the rest of your stuff is to calve off a big uh, segment that is just going to be failed specs, unlikely to recover. And this would be the kind of thing where you bought it a dollar, hoping it's going to go to $4. You bought it $5, hoping it was going to be a $20 rare it's been reprinted three or four times since. It's been on the list. It's been in Commander decks. Wizards looks like they've given up on it entirely as being something that's going to be of value. good example from the Doctor Who decks would be the uh, Waterlog Grove, Horizon mm. Canopy yeah. style, style lands. They are so easy to pull out of the Doctor Who CBs that they're probably dead in the water. Um, and now that they've printed them in a Commander deck, they might well do so again. So the idea, you know, if you're sitting on 50 copies of Fiery Islet, it's probably never going to be a better time to act, to exit on that and to sell them onesie twosie could literally take years because people don't tend to need four at a time mm-hmm. where if you're sitting on 50 or 100 and you can get a reasonable buy list on them that that probably make makes a lot of sense and then the other thing you can do is draw your own line in the sand is to say you know i'm not going to sell under five ten or maybe twenty and then you kind of put all the stuff that is twenty dollars plus over in a different pile and it's going to be your, you know, higher end staples, your in that are either multi-format or super staples in their own format. So you're talking about a wasteland, a smothering tie, the Ristic study, uh, you know, a doubling season, this kind of stuff. Where even if it's caught reprints recently, the recovery time is now dubious. We all kind of don't know when the next Ristic or doubling season will hit. So whatever you can get for it today is probably pretty good. 
And then the other piece of the, you know, $10 or $20 plus stuff that's probably worth segmenting off is rarities. So this can be true old border foils. So like 15, 20 year old foils where even, no matter how many times they reprint Ninja of the Devourers, the original foil from CHK is still going to be a $100 plus card or whatever it is because it's so old and so hard to come by. And, or it can be secret layer arts that have, you know, appreciated well and or are beloved. Um, it can be, it could be a weird version, like an oil slick of an Elish Norn or something where it probably will be a gainer. They're not likely to reprint the card because it's so specific to a certain storyline or plane or whatever. We know that in a world of increasing universes beyond stuff, the staple stuff, like your doubling seasons and your and your scalding turns, are at increased risk. But I would argue that the counter to that is that the very plain specific stuff is at a much lower risk. Like I talked about when I selected Techathol Oil Slick a couple of weeks ago on cast, how very, very unlikely it was that they would find room to reprint Techathol anytime soon. You know, it's not the kind of card that looks like it's going to go straight into a commander deck. It's got to be down near the bottom half of the list for secret layers. There's no way it's in Modern Horizons 3. They have no reason to put it in Fallout, etc., etc. So some of that, you know, a Gishath is, a, is another decent example where if the card only has a couple of printings and you're heading into Dinosaur Hype, you definitely don't need to be in a rush to buy list it when you can probably just throw it up at retail and, and get retail minus 10 or 15%. Uh, I think that's there's uh, kind of a wide range of approaches there. I think one of the first ones that you mentioned is is probably been my my primary mode of selecting items for sending to CK, and that's just like stuff that I've kind of had in my binders for a while that um, either aren't going anywhere, and I'm like ready to finally just cut bait with them after you know years of them you know me crossing my fingers and hoping that they'll go up mm -hmm. or or something that has just been reprinted like i'm i'm looking at a, a recent buy list that i sent to ck like i i had a, a handful of um of giver of runes and foil from mh1 that i i'd have to look at the number is but i probably paid like 20 or 30 a piece for those like four years ago prior to mh2 or maybe just before mh2 um i you know they've been they've been reprinted a couple times since then it's fallen out of favor in the meta that i would say that's another aspect of it it's just like what what competitive cards do i have that i was specking on because they were good in the meta at the time and now no longer are um i you know, I, I'm sure I lost like 80% of the money that I put into these giver of runes, but it's just like, well, whatever. Um, I'm just moving on at this point. But I, I think one thing that is my, my general strategy, and I was kind of mentioning this to you offline as well, James, or before the cast, I guess, is that I, I don't typically go more than like a couple hundred dollars deep on any single card. Um, right. So anytime something does get reprinted like it it hurts but it's not just like you know it's not 
backbreaking. It's just kind of like, okay, if I, uh, if I put $150 into a handful of copies of foil giver of runes in 2018, uh, and then they basically only went down since then, like I'm, I'm out a hundred bucks over the course of the last five years, but like I didn't buy $300 worth of those cards. So that's, I would say that's my general strategy and avoiding risk is just not to go too deep monetarily on any one thing. And if I am going deep in quantity of copies, it's on, it's on something that, you know, I, I could have bought for two, five, $10 a piece, like Academy Rectors. I've got a billion of those. Um, and so the the, the the upside there is as you as you said you're not exposed to any one card the downside yeah. is you have a fairly wide collection yes <laughs> of inventory so now you've got to parcel that yeah. it's like one of the other things that you could certainly look at and i think this is where you know do you have an lgs that you frequent that's pot that, that is busy yeah that i live like in a strong community I, I live in the denver metro area and there's a handful of pretty sizable stores that are here um sure i guess i i it's been a while since i've played at any of them competitively like pre pre-covid for sure um and i guess maybe maybe this is me and my own you know personal blinders being on when perhaps they shouldn't be um i haven't had the best experiences in trying to sell or even buy sometimes with some of these stores and so i'm i'm largely just a little bit turned off to taking everything into a store locally um and like as an example uh what what are they called now magic fests magic cons any any number of like smaller non non wizard sponsored um conventions will be in town and usually there's uh a dozen vendors or so and two or three of them are at least locally and every time i i'm looking to buy list um some things at these conventions uh the best prices that i get are from out of town stores so i'm largely just i suppose averse to the idea of taking everything into a store locally because i don't have a strong uh relationship with any of them anymore having not played in them regularly over the years and I haven't had much positive experience with them trying to sell them uh, cards in limited capacity in the last few years. So it's, it's sort of like, that would be great. I would love to just like walk in and then be like, yeah, I'll give you 65% of TCG low. And I'll be like, sweet. But yeah. So that, that wasn't actually what I was getting at. Oh, okay. What I, what I was getting at is if you're in a relatively busy magic area, as opposed to living in some random small town of 2000 people that has one store that can barely get a draft together in the middle of Southern Indiana or something, the, in a decently sized Metro area, I would be looking at Facebook as a potential exit, mm. leveraging the size of the local community to not to either beat buy list or, to trade out groups of cards to speculators and vendors in the area in exchange for higher priced cards. Mm. So one of the things you could do either on Facebook, but it's also something you could probably do in our Discord. In fact, that may actually be your best option would be yeah, to go into our... Yeah, I was going to bring up. If you price everything and then put a post in our BST that says, 
I I have thirteen thousand TCG low. Buy list on this is seven eight thousand four seven thousand eight hundred forty. I want to get nine thousand three hundred cash out of this, or whatever that middle number is that gets the job done. Yeah, you could probably unload about as much as you're willing to put the time into collating. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And then, and in doing so, you might. One of the things I I would do if I was in that position, I would pull aside some of the stuff that I know I can pretty easily get full retail on, or where the face value of the card in question, your Liliana would be a good example because they at one point were about four thousand dollars or something. <laughs> yeah. Now now they're I think going for something between fifteen hundred and twenty five hundred depending on where you're selling it, but it's still enough that if the percentage discount is applied, it's going to be outsized, right? Like mm. if I'm selling a $10,000 item and eBay takes 10%, they take $1,000 from me. When it's a $10 item and they take a dollar, I could care less. Mm-hmm. But that percentage is worse and worse the bigger the, the ticket of the item is. So I would probably put aside some stuff that, you know, is pretty liquid, that can sell pretty close to retail, you know, some du- duels in good shape, your Liliana, some masterpiece, if you've got a soul ring or a mana crypt or, you know, those kind of things, mm-hmm. some old border foils that are thematic and would be desirable in EDH circles, etc. That stuff I would probably just post on eBay and or TCG player and sell onesie twosie because the, you know, you're going to get maximize your return and you're pretty, you're in a reasonable expectation that you can unload it within six to 12 months. Usually when I post on eBay, that's what I'm looking for. Because lately on eBay, I have something like 900 listings at a time, at any given time. And I tend to sell about 250 to 300 per quarter, which suggests that I have a turnover of roughly 33% per quarter or something like that. The numbers kind of sway and you know ebb and flow here and there mm. but it's it's something like that i i'm getting rid of about turning over about a quarter of my inventory in in any given quarter that's been listed now that's not everything that's in my inventory but that's of my listed inventory right and and so if you put yourself in a position like that where you've got your highest yield easy most liquid items posted at retail price then you can take your failed spec bucket, your risky staples because of the reprint cadence, and your bricks, and package them together as a uh, a buy listable item. That your that your first attempt is to unload all at once, and you use the CK buy list as your leverage there, and you figure out what is it worth to you to not have to pack and ship those? Because since you're not TCG direct, you're in the same boat as me. You've literally got to pull the envelope, put the stamp on, write the address or print it out and go to the post office and drop off five, 10 packages a week or whatever. So every time you've got to do that has a value to it. And you can kind of guesstimate you know, where between buy, CK buy list and retail am I willing to land to get this all out of my hair? And because we have a bunch of vendors in our community, and this would also be true if you went to some of the bigger Facebook groups, where their velocity is very, very, very high. Like I'm a low six figures vendor on eBay, but we've got people in our Discord that are 
you know, half a million dollars a year on eBay or TCG player. And there's also sales managers at, at a bunch of the bigger stores in North America. So between all of those contacts, there is certainly going to be somebody that is going to, at minimum, maybe want to calve off a chunk. So you offer 1,400 cards in this big spreadsheet, and they say, I want all this stuff, but I don't want anything under $5. So you figure out what you're going to do with that stuff. And maybe that right. ends up going into a buy list. And sometimes there's also an opportunity. One of the things I, when I'm buy listing to CK, there's usually two groups of cards. There's the successful specs where you bought in low and, and the buy list is so strong. You know, if you were in on up the beanstalk very early and you picked up a hundred copies, then, you know, you can buy list to whoever you want right now and kind of name your price. And then there's also just weird situations where they just have low supply. Like some of the low supply stuff, often the buy list can get at one particular vendor. It could be cool, cool stuff. It could be Abu. It could be Card Kingdom. Used to be Channel Fireball would be in the mix on that sometimes. You'll just see a card that's TCG low 30 and they're offering 28 on buy list or something. Yeah. And as you start, as you start assembling your inventory, you're going to find some of your stuff is in that position and you can put that off to a separate pile because i was i traded for a mox with one of the vendors in in the discord about eight months ago or something like that and the way i did it was i put together like seven thousand dollars worth of stuff that i was willing to buy list in general and then i just picked the stuff where because they were offering a percentage of tcg low i just picked the stuff where the gap between the low and the buy the CK buy list was much larger than usual so that I got maximum value from transferring those cards out of the CK buy list pile and into the trading into a mox pile so that I got that mox for the minimum amount possible and then the rest of that stuff got buy listed to CK and ended up where it was supposed to be I did I did used to split my buy lists between um abu ck and and cool stuff uh i would sure. i would maximize yeah it. i would manually go through and just like check to see which site was paying the most on which card and sorted everything into three piles but i would say within the last like two years it was more of just like a do i want to spend twice as much time to do this to make an extra like yeah 15 percent? like not really so i just started dumping it all to ck because they were consistently the highest buy so there's yeah there's uh a couple things that i want to talk about because you you do a lot of similar things that i do in terms of like how much you spend on any one spec mm -hmm. i find that there is a great psychological value in knowing what my bad specs have been but i don't want to keep those damn cards <laughs> they remind me of an error totally. i have made and it stings me yeah and I'm okay, like, having some in anticipation of, like, uh, one day maybe we'll talk about Icebreaker Kraken and the <laughs> sheer giant bricks I have of those stupid cards. Every time a new Kraken uh, commander comes out, I buy some more. So I'm ready when that stupid card spikes. I'm not ready to get rid of it yet, but there are plenty of others that I've just gotten rid of because I was wrong. And I know why I was wrong. I know what's different now. And uh, you've alluded to it a couple times now is that I'm, I'm looking more for like, what's my direct plan for a spec? So like dinosaurs are big. Uh, we talked about some others that you'll hear about on the cast, like with the Fallout cards. 
So we have more of a plan going on at this point than we used to. And that change is okay and it's healthy and it's just fine to get rid of the cards that didn't work out. Um, James, I know sometimes you post in the discord about how you've got something that you bought, you know, four years ago, five years ago, and you kept around a, a Russian foil or whatever. I try not to keep anything that long. And I find that one of the best things I can do is one of two things. And you might have considered some of these. One is what James said, where you're finding somebody who sells a lot more volume than you do. TCG Direct, if you're a direct vendor, you need an immense volume of cards. And looking at your spreadsheet, this is the kind of volume that I think a lot of those folks would like. So you'll probably get a pretty good response if you put some of these out there for that. It's also worth it when you're putting your spreadsheet together to note the current TCG Direct price on the card in question, as well as TCG Low. Because you can, if you're dealing with a direct vendor you can use that as leverage in the negotiation where you have a TCG low card at $10, but the direct price is 18. You can ask for more than you normally would because that person's mm. going to get more than low. Low is only relevant if that's the price they're going to get <laughs> when they sell it. Right. But if I know, if I know somebody's going it, to, it's because people are always trying to play these tricks. Like a guy in Canada, the thing that happens all the time is a card will sell out at face to face games, which is basically our star city. And that everybody kind of like crafts their prices around and say it's commandeer foil etched. And yesterday it was $20. They had two copies in stock. They sold out. And now everybody goes on Facebook and says, Hey, I'm willing to pay a hundred percent of face to face value. Whereas normally the Facebook group in Canada will only pay 75 or 80% of face to face. And so they are trying to make it look like they're being very, uh, you know, generous to offer 100% of face, but really <laughs> their half current market price on TCG player where copies have already been trading hands at 40 to $50. Anybody who's been doing it long enough should know that as soon as they see somebody paying willing to pay a 100% of yeah. market, that, yeah. that a little alarm bell should go off in your head and ask why that is. Exactly. But, but conversely, when dealing with TCG direct vendors, they really can get and brag about frequently the exorbitant amounts that people pay just because that price is posted in the top right corner of the card details page. And so a lot of people end up putting it in the cart, even though it's not the lowest price, just because visually it seems like it might be. Mm. And and because of that, there's, there's going to be some room for negotiation there. If anybody knows of a way to quickly pull TCG direct prices uh quick and quickly easily i would be all ears i mean you can go into the tcg vendor info channel i was gonna say the discord probably has some really good ideas and try to petition some of the people that run their own scripts like alexis but whether or not they're willing to share them will be entirely up to them the the one thing i will say is that in terms of you know looking through some of your cards for instance you've got a tab called higher uh dollar value lands and a lot of these are the fetches from modern horizons too the that are you know have crashed in price from from their printing now if they leave them alone for two years from here because everybody is assuming that we're getting allied fetches in mh3 but there's no guarantee but there's no guarantee they could give us both of the the families of fetches in mh3 they could give us neither they they could find some subset in some standard set over the next 18 months and reprint them again just like they did in zendikar rising so it's risky. There, there is an undeniable risk to holding those any further. 
if you were an EDH player, I would just tell you to put you, put them in your decks. But if you don't want to be caught holding them, then I think the answer on those is pretty straightforward. It's it's a sell. It, as much as it's a loss, one of the things I've learned over the years is money that you can repurpose is worth so much more than pride. Like I, I reported a <laughs> sale recently in the Discord that was something like Eye of Ugin, Judge Promo <laughs> Expedition, purchased at like $240 or something and sold like with a big smile for 90 as people were building their Zuladoc decks this summer because that card had just been rotting in a dead specs box. So I know I'm exactly down. how long it's been because my two very first column specs with purchases with the intent to resell immediately for profit was a pair of World Wake Ayabugans during Eldrazi Winter. So I know that was sure. a long time ago because it is exactly how long ago it was since I started doing this. <laughs> and and the funny thing is like you got to go big picture. Like I made a ton of money during Eldrazi Winter. Yes, I got caught holding these a couple of a pair of these judge foils or expeditions or whatever. It, it's not that big a deal in the grand scheme of things. And the fact that I can then years later recoup at least $90 of one and put it back into some other spec that might be, you know, a double up some or whatever. That's good by me. And it's, it's always better to, to declare your loss. First of all, for tax purposes, it's a loss depending on how your tax structure is and what country you're in or whatever, you got to talk to your accountant. But in a lot of situations, a loss is a loss. You're going to get to declare that and balance it against your profits. So it's not that bad. And you would much, much rather get that money in circulation. And this is especially true, um, even if this doesn't apply to Nathan's situation, for some of our members or, or people listening, they might be playing with a much smaller set of funds. Bankroll. Yeah. You know, if your bankroll is only you know 500 or 1,000 or 2,500 or whatever, and you're just dipping your toe in the collectible waters, whatever it is, like video games, comic books, Transformers, magic cards, whatever, then you got to be a lot more careful. If, it, if it's more of a, I'm very, you know, my core situation is secure, my mainstream job is is reliable, the magic thing is absolutely a side, a side thing, then you can take bigger risks for potentially bigger rewards. You just got to be willing to accept that you may also misstep. In the case of something like, you know, Modern Horizons 2 rares, it seems to me like in most of those situations, the, the answer is to sell. Now, that being said... Before you were joining us on cast today, one of my picks this week was Shardless Agent Borderless Foils from MH2, which languished for years and now have almost entirely dried up because all of a sudden the Beanstalk decks want them. So it's clear that a foil rare from MH2 under pressure could show gains. The question is, you know, will they leave it alone long enough for that to happen? Now, Nathan, there's one thing I want to ask you if you've considered, because you've, you've talked about a lot of ways that people out their cards and out large numbers of cards. You didn't have uh, great experiences at Magic Cons or Magic Fests or the, the Laughing Dragon ones or whatever the events are that, that were going on. One of the things I want you to stop and, and give consideration to is look at your your bulk and your bricks and your missed specs and give it a number value and think about what you could do on one giant trade in for that. Because while it stings that you 
might not get full value on cash. If you could go for uh, a serialized card that would make your commander deck happy. If you could get two or three uh, spiffy-looking dual lands from a vendor in exchange for this long box of failed specs and never really got their cards. That feels real good. And it's definitely a way to minimize the hurt of what you did wrong and still acquire something that gives you the joy that you were hoping the specs would give you. And that's a an out that we've talked a lot about by listing to Card Kingdom. Uh, if you build up your uh, the credit with them over the years, you can definitely out it into all kinds of neat things that they've had. So give that some consideration as well. If you don't need to get the cash immediately and you don't mind rolling it into something larger, remember that you'll make a lot of your percentages back on their credit bonuses, whether it's Card Kingdom or other places. You might have better luck at a Magic Con. You might have better luck with the online buy lists. But I love taking a, a big stack of not quite valuable things and turning it into something that brings me great shiny joy. That's That has been my chief strategy with, with buy listing is, is taking uh, stacks of something that I had and trying to part with the emotional aspect of it and just selling it for whatever I can get for it. Um, that, that works. I, I do that judiciously with CK depending on what it is they're paying on on the card specifically, like if they're, if they're paying anything between like 50 and 70% of TCG low, I'll usually just take them up on that and just cut bait and, and trade it into something larger. As right. you said. What I'm, what I'm imagining is, is a scenario though, where I'm at like a, a convention locally and I walk in with 13 foil copies of Combal console of allocation. I, I don't know of a lot of like local stores that are willing to be like, oh yeah, we need a small stack of this like playable and popular card, but like they're not gonna be like, sure, we'll give you. I don't even know what the price is on it right now. Like we'll give you a dollar fifty, even though it's worth three dollars. I I just don't think the problem that I found with specking is that when you acquire a lot of one of something, most of the time stores don't want all of that thing. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be looking to walk any of this stuff into stores for the most part because your average store, just by their model, has to offer way less percentage-wise versus your better options. And if you didn't have access to the Discord, Facebook, and/or CK, then, or you didn't know about those things, you know, somebody sells to those stores. You just don't want it to be you. But one of the strategies I have used that's also an option when I go to CK is I take credit and then I turn it into a spec that I do feel confident in. Oh, that's so, what I do every time. For instance, yeah. So like, for instance, <laughs> I, I picked up, I think well after they had started to explode, I felt there was more meat on the bone for masterpiece soul rings. And I picked six of them up from CK at 300 a piece on a buy list where I was already up 74% or something. And those I can now sell for 600 to $800 whenever I feel like it. And that's just extra meat on an already juicy bone. So one of your options, say you're putting together your big list, you've got 20,000 worth of stuff. It's TCG low 20 K buy list is 14 or something or 13. And you're hoping to land somewhere in the middle and somebody offers you 17,000 too. 
you might say to them, well, I saw that you have such and such a lotus, right? In such and such a condition. And they assess that at being worth two or 3,000 more than they're offering you in cash. And you trade into something that you as a magic player who was, you know, reasonably well off and not, you know, in no need for the cash might say, you know what? Like, I don't want to have all this shit sitting around my house, but if I can turn it into a lotus. I would love to have a lotus sitting around my house. You know, (laughs) if that if that does, you know, maybe that has more upside. Maybe it doesn't. Maybe lotuses are going to be flat for a long time, but it's probably a significantly less risky than Skelding Tarn. <laughs> so, yeah. so that option certainly exists. Like it's something I have done in the past, where if I get a cash offer, and I know that they have inven- you know, like reasonably deep high end inventory, then I will at least kick the can around to see what my option is to exit at a higher valuation into a piece of cardboard because then you might be able to then turn that around and you could trade that to somebody else for inventory. You could trade it to somebody else for cash. It's a single transaction. So you've got a, a fairly liquid inventory that, you know, maybe you lost a few thousand on the deal versus your inputs, but you have some upside potential in the long term, and you have the ability to get to cash that much easier. It's also worth saying that uh, one thing I've done, because I I have a similar tendency as you do when it's a lower-priced card to buy a uh, big, giant stack, especially if, like, uh, the gaming company has a big, giant stack ready to go. Uh, The TCG buy list is a great way to find a bunch of place people all in one spot that you can buy list it to, and it's pretty easy to get rid of a larger stack that way, as well as... You know, always feel free to reach out to vendors and buyers ahead of time. Uh, a lot of the conventions will list who's going to be there. And I've had good experiences with saying, I've got this collection that I'd like to bring. It's, you know, roughly this many cards, roughly this much in value. Uh, can we make an appointment? Because I don't want to be that fool standing around with, you know, five binders and two boxes full of cards waiting for my turn. Certainly. You know, I want to set a time. I want to be there. I want to treat their time as important, just like my time is, and I've I've done that to to great effect so far, and so these are just ways that you can maximize what you're well you're willing to cut bait, and I respect that, and so now we just need to be a question of like how are you going to do it with the least amount of fish scales getting all over you and your stuff. Yeah, this comment's not for Nathan because I'm sure he's aware, but if you're going to a large event. To sell cards, as opposed to submitting to CK or, or leveraging social channels, the the best reason to do that is that you happen to be sitting on bricks of very high demand items that are going to be easy for those vendors to flip at a premium. So if I was heading to a big GP style event this weekend, I would want to have anime smothering tithe, non-foil. I would want to have doubling season. I would want to have... Urborg. I would want to have up the beanstalk, solitude, shardless agents, furies, griefs. If you've got all that stuff and you've got relatively thick stacks of it, then you can you have a lot more negotiation power than if you show up with twenty seven copies of Chinese foil Campbell, where you literally won't be able to <laughs> unload a single copy. Twelve foil copies of. Japanese Silvergill adept from uh, the open house decks from like seven years ago. That's that's a real one. <laughs> sure, sure. That's a good one. So 
I mean, in the case of something like that, you're you're better off just either throwing it up on eBay as a playset. One of the things where eBay is better than TCG Player is just the natural way that people search for playsets on eBay. If you have four relatively rare matching things that are thematic and go into either an EDH deck, like say Dan Frazier Signets, or you have, uh, like the other day I sold... Uh, matching within a week, I sold two matching sets of Japanese foil extended art counter spells from CMR and a German set. And I got like 40 for one set and, or like 15 a copy for the, I think the Japanese ones and 25 a copy for the Germans and English price right now is like $2 and 50 cents or something. And that's not a sale that would ever have happened on TCG player, but it was easy breezy on on ebay because there's somebody out there that's a german foil collector there's someone that's a that's a japanese foil collector and they're typing in the keywords that get them to your listing and so depending on the the uh composition of your collection sometimes it's really worth it to just install the ebay app and start selling certain kinds of things that just work better on that platform uh so i think we've covered a lot of we covered a lot of ground here Nathan, do you have any like specific outstanding questions or lines of discussion that you'd like to go through with us before we wrap up? No, I, I don't I don't think so. I, th- I feel like we've talked about most of uh, what I had in my mind to think about during this cast. I mean, we'll be available on the Discord too if you want. Yeah, we, I, we can certainly follow up and help help get some of the stuff sold and in the manner that we described. I think I certainly will uh, at, at some point that sounds like an avenue worth exploring is starting to put some market prices in the spreadsheet that I sent y'all and looking at the direct prices for these cards as well and perhaps uh, reaching some sort of middle ground with a Discord member uh, in a way that would be better than a Facebook interaction um, but you know, not still not having to to just take a huge L on the whole stack. Alrighty. Well, we uh, thank you for coming on with us today, Nathan, and uh, for your support of the Pro Trader program for these last several years. And uh, we wish you all the best in your exit strategy. Cliff, where can folks find you online, my friend? You can find me online on Twitter at Word of Commander or my articles every Friday on MTGPrice.com. And you can find me on Twitter at MTGCritic, as well as via my occasional articles on MTGPrice.com and my constant haunting of the ProTrader Discord. I'd also like to remind our listeners to check out the MTGPrice.com ProTrader service for just $9.99 a month or $109.99 per year. You can get early access to this podcast, fantastic articles by the best MTG finance minds in the business, low-cost group buys, and a super active Discord forum that will drive better returns and save you money playing Magic the Gathering. Once again, MTG Fast Finance is proudly sponsored by Cool Stuff, Inc., where you can find all sorts of cool, nerdy stuff in stock, including all the best in Magic the Gathering singles, sealed product, and a plethora of other collectibles. Please use the promo code FINANCE5, that's FINANCE with the number 5, during checkout at CoolStuffInc.com to save 5% off your order and support this podcast. Thank you, Cliff. Thank you, Nathan. And we will see all of you next week on another episode of MTG Fast Finance. (laughs) 